welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us we have Dave Wally, who's uh, known as Heavy. Heavy was mountain rescue team member for 36 years, during which time he was the team leader for Lucas and Kinloss and deputy team leader down at the RAF Valley Mountain Rescue Service. He covered over a thousand mountain rescues and was involved with 80 air crashes during his time in mountain rescue before working in the rescue coordination center at RAF Kinloss. But today we're going to go back a little while in history and, and look at some of the earlier incidents and the effect that they had on Heavy and on the team that was surrounding him. Heavy, thanks very much for joining us. No problem at all. Thank you for inviting me. So I guess the sort of, in a sense, the, the defining incident that you attended early on in your career would be, would be Lockerbie. What happened during that? Well, it, it was, but you know, you have to kind of put the background. I mean, I joined Mountain Rescue in 1971. So I was, you know, not trying to be big headed, but I was pretty seasoned because Lockerbie was 1988. So I'd been to, you know, a multitude of incidents, many aircraft crashes, but Lockerbie was definitely out of the remit of any of us I'd ever seen before. We were very early on scene. The RAF Mountain Rescue's primary job is uh, recovery of aircraft crashes and recovery of the crew. So we were called on very quickly and we had four RAF teams over 100 personnel there. And because it was in my patch at Lockerbie, we were very heavily involved. And by first light in the morning, we'd located 160 fatalities, which is a horrendous thing to be doing. And it's still the worst tragedy that's ever hit Britain especially Scotland, in the terrorist thing. So we were in a, a, another world, really, from what we'd seen. And I say before, you know, we were fairly seasoned going into mountain accidents and then aircraft crashes, but this was way out of anything we'd seen before. And I guess seasoned in two respects, because the RAF teams are made up of serving services personnel as well as, as being mountain rescuers and folk who are accustomed to, to dealing with with injury and occasionally death. Yeah, well, I hate to say this, but we were dealing with 10 mountain fatalities a year plus aircraft incidents. That's an awful lot. And mountain accidents are really horrific and hard going. But, you know, again, we thought we'd seen most things, but this was completely horrendous to see. Most of the guys were married or very, very young. And unfortunately, this tragedy with 270 fatalities, there was children, it was Christmas, it was way out of end we'd seen before. So at that point, what was what was available to you in terms of, of support? There was nothing then. You know, in the military in these days, and it's only it's not that long ago, 30 odd years now, uh, the military had an attitude of, you know, big boys and girls don't cry. It's part of the job, it's part of what you signed up for, get on with it. Um, and uh, when this occurred then, I realised this was bonkers because a lot of the guys were suffering, I suffered, and we had to try and do something. And when I was asked what we needed at the incident, just within the first two hours, I don't know why I said it, 
I think we're going to need psychiatric help after this. And that's not a thing we would ever say because in these days we didn't talk about it. I'll be very honest. And even 30 years down the line, there is still a culture that exists amongst mountain rescue and the emergency services that, you know, it's all part of the job and you just sort of suck it up and get on with it. And I'm so glad we were big movers in trying to change this and hopefully things have changed a lot better. But there was lots of great friends, good people who said, what are you doing asking for help? It's a sign of weakness. And it certainly isn't. It certainly isn't. You know, one of the prime things is that you should talk about it. In these days, it was dark. It was a dark secret most of us had. And I was very ill and quite a few of the team became ill. And, you know, lots of people from all walks of life who were involved in it, they have suffered over the years. But hopefully things have improved to help people for the future. Because it's a huge thing, this. One of the things that I guess is different from the majority of the, the basics responders that we look after is that you guys were part of a team and in a sense had some of that resilience network built up around you already. Yes, and I didn't really understand, but what we had was we did have this team bond. We were looking after each other. We were very close and we were looking after the younger members. I made a decision that that nobody would be alone in this incident. We would be together, experienced and young person together. In my early days, if there was a casualty, one of the things you had to do was to grow up and go on with it. But, you know, we, we changed huge attitudes. And not only to us, but we didn't know who to speak to. Because when we came home for Christmas after three days of this, then we had to meet our families. And you don't talk about it, in, especially in these days, to your families. They had no clue. Our people at work had no clue what we'd done, what was involved in the, the horrors of it. It's something I want to, to touch on, because it, it does feel like you don't want to burden those who you know haven't chosen that that life haven't haven't volunteered for it you don't want to unload a, a catastrophic incident or scene onto them when when they really don't have the necessarily the ability to understand it or, or to to see it within a context that you do but uh, they are part of of your group and very very important part and if you're suffering they need to know to what to look out to so there was like an education that's taken part over many many years now to to try and help families notice something's wrong. And that's a big thing, because we were in a team, we could notice people were starting to struggle with what they'd seen. And what sort of things were you, were you telling the family to look out for? Well, in later years, we didn't at the time, you know. But nowadays we say if somebody starts, I hate to say it, says they get quiet, they get angry, people start to drink, you know, they, they kind of, don't want to be part of a, of the group anymore. Or they, they, they start behaving on a completely different. Everybody handles these things differently. A lot of people can cope, but a lot of people can't. But when you're part of, of the group we were in, we could spot things pretty quickly, a lot closer, because most of our people were volunteers, a lot quicker than the, the people at work could, you know, because we are close. When you climb, and you risk your lives together, you build this bond, ambulance crews do it, lifeguards do it, responders do it. You build this bond and you get to know the people very, very well, I think. Absolutely. And it's a very unique bond that a lot of folk don't necessarily understand. With it comes all the, the black humour and the camaraderie. Yes, it does. But 
Also, I mean, no, after Lockerbie, I went to other things with the Shackleton crash, which was nine fatalities in Harris and 29 killed in the Chinook. And one of the things I said in the Chinook a few years later was, because I was in the fast part, the aircraft was on fire, please keep your eyes on me. I was big enough to say to the guys, I'm going to struggle here. This is too late, what I've seen before. So you have to be very honest in your approach to things. I also took time off from Mountain Rescue for a wee while because I just couldn't cope with it, I'll be honest with you. And I was struggling very much so. Going back to that Chinook crash, what were you doing, aside from getting your team to look out for you, in terms of self-care, were you using strategies to try and manage the anxiety that you were feeling going back into that situation? Well, no, because that was, you know, 1994, there was very little. I did what they call a trim course in Ireland, which was quite helpful. And that was a kind of talking and learning about other people. But what I found the trim course and a lot of these courses, if you're the leader of the group, the responsibility is on you. So on an incident, once I'm saying, even though I'm the leader, <laughs> keep your eye on me, the incident keeps you going, the adrenaline keeps you going, but after it, you have to be very careful. And you have to speak to somebody. And I'm very lucky. I've got great people who I can speak to, which is very important. That's certainly something that, that a lot of basics responders, by the nature of who we are and, and the role in which we're responding in, we tend to end up with leadership type roles in yes in the accidents and emergencies that we attend. And, yes. and it is quite lonely, particularly when you don't have a crewmate as you do on an ambulance or, or a teammate with you. And that is the loneliness of being a leader. And, you know, after a lot of these incidents, you have to do a lot of reports and you'll find, I found that I was doing them at night, not going home for ages, and guys were coming in to talk to me about it. So it's constant. So you have to get that break away from it and try and do things. I mean, I get a great joy of going out in the mountains or being nowadays with my grandkids and, and things like that. I have ways of coping now with it. You know, I wish I'd had 30 years ago, but there is systems in place where you need to work out what is good for you with the help of experts. And it's the experts that are available now. It's a tricky time, especially what's going on just now. You need to find out what's good for you and what can help you. It's interesting hearing you kind of talk about a very personalised approach because certainly during COVID, there was a lot of, of help was being thrown around, but it was all fairly generic and not necessarily tailored to, to each individual. Did you find that there were things that you tried that didn't work for you? Oh, of course there is. Everything's different for everybody. As I said, a lot of the people cope without needing help. But yet, over the years, a lot of these things, if you deal with a traumatic incident, I've found talking to some some of the ex-mountain rescue people going back to the 50s and 60s who are still alive will tell you that incidents will still bother them 50 years later when they were young people. So it's quite amazing. These incidents might stick in you and you've got to make your family and your friends aware of this what can be happening i mean every time at the anniversary of lockerbie I, I get a wee bit down but i work my way through it and get on with it i also do things where i meet a lot of people who have had accidents in the hills and unfortunately brought their relatives off 20 30 years later they'll ask you could you take them to the hill and i find that for me a cathartic thing to do a lot of people wouldn't want to do that, but I find I got a lot of good out of that, knowing that despite that tragedy, you know, we have brought somebody home or we've done our best. And a lot of times when people die on the mountains or wherever in, wherever you're involved in, you think it's a lost cause and you're down, but 
you are bringing this help that, that you were with the family member at their worst time and you, you brought them the respect to bring them off a mountain. What you're talking about there in terms of the the long tail, I guess, behind some of these traumatic incidents. Yeah, and, there, and there's a huge long tail, which people maybe not yet will realise, but there is. And it seems as though you know, now there is a, a lot of support that is focused in the minutes, hours, days, maybe weeks after a, a traumatic incident. But what do you think we could do better in terms of, of the longer term care? I think we've got to be aware, but unfortunately, when you leave the military or when you leave your service, there's very little kind of aftercare. And I think as a, we're very lucky because as a group, we still have kind of association who we have a kind of welfare officer. It's all unpaid and, and we are looking after each other as best we can. But that's taken years. We spend years out, out in the mountains looking for people we don't know yet. We don't care for each other. I, I found that quite hard, but there's a lot of that going on now. We are looking after each other as we get older. The people I know when I'm having a hard time that I can phone. So it's good having this thing that goes on after you've left the service. You don't want to talk about it all the time, of course, but you also want it there if you need it. So I think these voluntary groups are very, very helpful. And, and somebody who can listen to you. And it's also, I think, helpful. Maybe a lot of people don't agree. Somebody who's been in that situation, what you're suffering from, who can see it from your point of view. And out of the darkness and the dark days, there, there is a light, you know, and that's what always keeps me going. It's something that we're in the process of setting up through basics, is trying to have a group of people who are experienced responders and who have, have got some, some miles under their belts to act as links people, not in any professional expert capacity, but just to to act as a point of reference for folk and maybe to signpost them to to specialist care if if they feel it's needed. Yeah, and and, and that's a great thing you're doing, and and that's the kind of thing we have to do. But we spend a lot of time spending money and training and giving everybody the best equipment, but the long term effects really need looked after. And when you're in the adrenaline of your job and and you're busy, busy with a family, sometimes it takes years for this to manifest itself. So having that around is very good. So th this is how things are improving and we've got to keep things proving. And we've got to look outside the box as well. You know, look at new methods, new ways of doing it. Now, all the way through, you've mentioned families a lot. And I guess for some folks, they are really the keystone of, of, of how they cope. But the military family is, is quite different in a sense because you live on the one patch and and generally there's, there's a lot of links between families how do you think that works in, in the civilian context where you don't have that kind of that family social network I, I mean that's quite hard because even traveling home after an incident we were usually two or three hours away so we had to travel back and that give you a wee bit of time to talk or not talk I think it was and there's some civilian mountain rescue teams and other people live a long way away from each other so it's very hard I think you've got to really work your, your families by, you know, we started doing things like families days and we barbecue to get to know people. And that's the way to do it, I think. You know, barbecues, get the kids down if you're a fireman or if you're a, if you're a first responder or if you're a first aider or a paramedic, get them down to the, the base for the day or for a wee while, see all the stuff, be part of the group so they're not outside. And that's the way you build up. I think you build up social contact, you build up things. It's a bit of work, it's another thing to do, but it's a great thing. Because then the wives know who they're talking to, and if they want help, they can get it.
I guess yeah, it's 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 enabling people to 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 know where to turn when things aren't going yeah. right because it nothing worse than the stress of things not going right and not knowing the, the person that you're picking up the phone to. No, and that's a huge. You know, we should all be doing stuff with it, and we do it a lot because everybody does have a get together or whatever. But it's it's nice to do something with the family. You know, get the families down, and you know, even if they get a shout when you're down there, there's still other people there who can help. But that does build up a kind of bond between you and the families, and then you can just drop things in and get things going. And I think it's just my my thoughts, and I think it's worked great because. I've had lots of kind of heads up from people saying somebody's struggling uh, and that's good to know. They trust your honesty, they trust your confidentiality and you can maybe seek help for them. There's a huge problem going on with mental illnesses that manifest itself from things in the past and you know we are talking a lot better but it's a lot easy after the incident to forget everything and that's not how you get ill, you know things happen later on usually. What do you think we need to do to try and change the underlying culture you know trying to get get further away from this idea that we should just be it's all part of the job and just get on with it it's not you know to me you've got to break that and you have to have strong people not just management who says a buzzword that's not what they want yeah i think you have to have people standing up quite and it's hard i've stood up in front of thousands of people and some i've done quite a few talks and said this is what happened to me and i've gone into the nitty-gritty and I said, I'm not, I'm not a small guy, but I was very lucky to do a great job, but it nearly killed me. And I think if you have people who are honest and, and tell you that, you know, how they've gone through it and how they've got back from it, that is really good. It's pointless going to a seminar where they talk about bits and pieces and they do all the buzzword, but you really need somebody with a story, I think, because the story gets it through. I find it hard and a few other people who talk about these kind of things do. But you've got to talk and you've got to show people that, wow, I didn't know that was going on. But learn from me. Don't make the mistakes that I made. Don't make your family suffer like I unfortunately did with me because they didn't know what to do. You know, nowadays we do know a lot more. There's a lot more help about, but it's continual. I would hate to see how far away we are from getting something sorted out for good. It's long term and good people like this we podcast hopefully is going to help people even if all it does is again raise raise the kind of awareness and show that people who have got entire careers that have been involved in in tragedies you know none of us are invulnerable to this nobody is and in the end i did 40 years in mountain rescue because i joined the Torridon team but you know at six they said enough's enough i've seen enough trauma in my life and i want to go out and enjoy the hills and, and do what i want to do um, I think you can put yourself in the front line too long as well. You know, maybe that's what happened to me, because, but that was a job and I enjoyed it. And, and I also hopefully cared for the people I was looking after. And I thought, I've got the experience, at least I can help them with what's going on here. You know, and I think in any tragedy, and especially in a disaster like God forbid we see again, I've learned a lot that you minimise the number of people who go to these incidents, sorry, or who actually have to do the horrible things that have to be done. And a lot of the early days, there was lots of onlookers, lots of top brass from everywhere, police, fire, having to be up at the site. And if you've seen a kind of aircraft crash or a battlefield, you don't want to see it again. And I was quite brutal and said to people as I got older, please, you don't want to come in here. This is not what you want to see. You know, the only people that need to be here is a few police that have got to do the bit, the procreative fiscal and bits and pieces. But this is not what you want to see because this will haunt you. And I'm honest and say that. That's certainly something that you know, even attending big car crashes around me on the A9, 
it seems to be to have this magnetic drawer of people who are horrified and yet fascinated. And you, you do need to kind of do that. And it's quite hard because people want to see and they want to be able to do something. But in the end, if you've got the situation under control, you need the minimum people to do it. And I think it's up to the managers to keep the others away and, and use them as you need them, you know. And I think the protocols for that are being accepted, but it's taken us years to accept that because everybody wanted to be a part of whatever it is. I can see why, but in the end, if there's no life to save, you just need to keep out of it, really, till the, the agencies come that have got to do what they've got to do. You mentioned in terms of, of keeping folk away, and you said that you, you yourself stepped away for a while during your years in mountain rescue. I think a lot of folk feel quite guilty when they stop responding, stop turning up to jobs, when it's, it's not the right thing for them to do. How was it for you kind of stepping away and, and taking a bit of time for yourself? It was very hard because I did it. I, I was going through a hard period and then two friends were killed climbing, which I was, was very involved. But the police were great and all that. But I thought I just can't go picking people up just now. My head's not there. I'd be dangerous. So I, I just took three or four months off and it was the best thing I did because I, I could have been a liability. I don't think it would have been, but I didn't need any more trauma. And it's worse picking your friends up or doing something with somebody you knew. So that's quite hard. So everybody deals with things differently, but that was the right thing for me to do. But, you know, I, I'm a lot better now because things like my stepdaughter watched the programme and Lockerbie with me on an anniversary because I've done quite a bit on the television about it. Not about what I did, but how what the teams did in the rescue agencies and the Coast Guards and the helicopters. Because people don't even know the team, what people were doing in that, you know. And I think when she saw what we'd all been up to, gosh, it, it shocked her, but she could understand it. And that was a huge thing for me, getting it through to the family, what it is like and what we did. And it maybe explained a wee bit why I went off the rails for a while. I guess it gives them a, a frame of reference to try and start to understand yeah. some of the horrors that you see when you respond. And also, I think it's a job now, you know, I do quite a bit, of, I do a wee blog that does quite well. And when I mentioned post-traumatic stress, you would not believe how many people come back because I'm very honest about what happens in various incidents. So I think we have a we have a duty to pass on these things, or what we've learned, etc. Because sometimes it can be quite textbook, you know what I mean? But I think that the actual stories and what happened and how things have improved. And a friend of mine uh, who's in the Glencoe team called it the elephant in the room, and it is it's a huge thing this awareness of what can happen with stress and you know and dealing with it how we've got to improve it for the the younger people nowadays so that they are run through life is a lot better than ours you know yeah i can certainly recommend your blog some fantastic entries on it and we'll we'll put a link up with this podcast thank you you know and i, I just some great replies from policemen lifeboatmen paramedics it's wonderful because you get these guys talking about it for the first time and that's that's it we keep coming back to the point that it's getting folk talking about it and getting getting it out in the open. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Heavy, we've been asking all the folk who come on to the podcast to give us three top tips. And I guess specifically for you in terms of, of a bit of self-care and a bit of team care, what, what would you suggest? I think, number one, you've got to talk. It's good to talk about it. I was very lucky. I had a friend who was a nurse in Edinburgh who realised I was struggling after Lockerbie and he, he was great. But this was 1988, so he'd been aware of a very clever guy. And, you know, I got to talk to him and then I started to try and get the military to try and help me and all the rest of it. So number one, you've got to talk. Don't, never be ashamed to talk. 
And I think you've got to look after each other in your team, be able to know what's going on, look after them, look out for the signs. And then finally, look after your families. Families are very important. And, you know, there will be good and bad days, but in the end, you know, it should come good and you will get there. And all you can do is do your best. We're all humans. Everybody's different. Everybody handles things different. But these three things to me are very, very important. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing some of your experiences and, and insight and being so honest with it. Privilege to talk to you. Thank you. And all the best for the future. Thanks very much. Bye. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.